Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Well, if you've ever had children or grandchildren, then you know one of the many joys during their early development is when they start to imitate you. Researchers have found that when infants are just a few hours old, they can copy an adult who sticks their tongue out. And if we smile at them, they will smile back. When babies become toddlers, they have developed the cognitive and motor skills to mimic even more of mom and dad's behavior. Toddlers as young as 12 to 14 months old will imitate mom talking on the phone or dad mowing the lawn, as I remember my boys doing when they were little. Decades of studies have found that children imitate adults for several reasons, including so they can learn life skills and social behavior. Children are extremely impressionable learners who observe adults and then repeatedly reenact what they see adults do to develop their own skills. They also imitate their parents so they can bond with them. For example, little Ava will bring down her uh, dirty clothes to the laundry room as mom does the same thing. And then when mom responds with laughter and a smile and tickles her tummy with, what are you doing? That creates a moment of encouragement and affirmation and bonds the two in that experience. Children also copy their parents because it helps them become less dependent on their parents. For example, when little Jakey successfully duplicates dad picking up the toys off the living room floor and dad rewards that behavior with praise, it gives Jakey the confidence to do things on his own without dad's help. And hopefully he'll learn to pick up the toys by himself. And then, of course, one of the next major milestones in a child's development is taking their first steps towards walking. And this, again, allows toddlers to continue learning and bonding and becoming less dependent on their parents. Well, just like a human parent or grandparent, the Heavenly Father loves it when his children imitate him. And he knows, excuse me, it shows that when we do that, we're learning and we're desiring to bond with him and we are becoming less dependent on him. This is what the Apostle Paul wants to speak to us about today as we continue our series in the book of Ephesians called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and pull out the sermon note handout that was on the welcome table when you came in this morning. If you need to grab a copy, you can go ahead and get up and grab it. And if you need to borrow a Bible, we have plenty back on the information table. As you turn there to Ephesians chapter 5, let's review the theme verse for this series. It is uh, chapter 1 verse 4, and let's read it out loud together. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now notice, as we look at that verse, the first half of Ephesians 1, 4, 
sums up the theological foundation that Paul established in chapters 1 through 3. Meaning that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you didn't choose him, he chose you. The second half of the verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, also sums up the practical applications that Paul is making in the second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6. Because Christ followers are chosen by God, he expects us to live changed lives, holy and blameless before him. And so what he's doing here in chapters 4 through 6 is, is touching on the various sectors of our lives in which we need to develop holiness. Now, if the idea of living a holy and blameless life seems overwhelming to you, there's no need to be anxious. Because the Lord already knew that it might feel like that to us. And thankfully, he's provided everything we need to do so. In 2 Peter 1.3, for example, we're told that his divine power has given us everything that we need for a godly life. So the Lord realizes that we can't be like him without him helping us. It can't be done in our own strength. But only with the spiritual power that comes with a close relationship with Jesus Christ. The other reason we do not need to feel overwhelmed with living a holy and blameless life, as we see in Ephesians 1.4, is that the Lord is also giving us, has given us an example in himself to show us how to do it. And that brings us to our big idea for today, the sermon in one sentence. I want to encourage you to write down is this. Believers are born again so they can imitate their father. Believers are born again so they can imitate their father. In the passage we'll be looking at today, Ephesians 5, verses 1 to 17, the Apostle Paul continues to urge us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And he does so by applying the doctrine from chapters 1 through 3 to our daily conduct. Chapters 4 through 6, in essence, state that what we believe should shape how we behave. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul is going to explain in this passage how we can grow in personal holiness by imitating our Father. And he'll do so loosely using the same positive versus negative structure from what we saw last week in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 32. Now, although he won't explicitly say it in this passage today, you should be able to see his put off and put on strategy in the text. Follow along with me, please, if you would, as I read Ephesians chapter 5 and the first six verses. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure 
or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There are three things that Paul is going to tell us in the passage today that we're studying, three ways in which we should walk with the Lord or imitate Him. Here's number one on your outline. God expects His children to walk in love. God expects His children to walk in love. In verse 1, he says, Be imitators as beloved children. You know, in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says that all who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior were given the right to become children of God. Meaning, at the point of their conversion, when they were born again, they were adopted into God's family, granted all the privileges that come with being a part of his family, and called his own. Therefore, just as sons mimic their fathers and daughters mimic their mothers, believers in Jesus Christ are to imitate God. And just as our physical genes make us prone to imitate our parents in some ways, the spiritual genes that we receive from our Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ should make us want to imitate God in all of our ways. Now, this has an important implication because it means that the professing Christ follower should never, ever buy into the world's lies that sound like this. Just be yourself. You need to end that relationship because you've lost yourself. Or you need to take some time to find yourself again. Absolutely not. Warning, no, don't do that. Because being selfish is what got you in trouble with the Lord in the first place. In fact, in Galatians 2.20, Paul tells the Galatians that we need to, and us too, that we need to crucify ourselves daily and strive to be like Christ. So we are to be imitators of God. Now, he gets very, very practical, and you'll see on your outline, I've tried my best to show you the structure of the passage so that you can follow along and see the breaks. He answers in verse 2 how we should walk in love. How should we do it? And here's letter A. We need to start loving others. We need to start loving others. Paul calls us to love others by citing the most perfect, most complete demonstration of love in world history. The gospel. We see it in verse 2, what the essence of love is. It's giving. Notice it says, Christ gave himself up for us. Now, it's important to note that Jesus didn't demonstrate love by giving up certain things, but rather by giving up himself. This is a refrain that can be found throughout the entire New Testament because it was something the Lord did voluntarily. He wasn't forced to do it. He chose to do it. He gave himself up for us. 
According to Scripture, Christ followers have no rights to claim. Meaning there, there should be no limit to what we're willing to do in the name of the Lord and sacrificing and loving. Now, there are many ways that Christ followers can do this today. It can be as small as wearing a mask during this COVID-19 pandemic out of consideration for others, sacrificing our convenience and comfort for the sake of those who are more susceptible to catching the virus. Or it could be as big as laying down your life to save someone else in danger. Now, I would just add one caveat. Loving others in order to please God should not turn into people-pleasing. It's easy to do. To love the way Christ loves is to be God-pleasing. And remembering this can help us discern who, when, and how we should go about loving. Next, Paul tells us, uh, letter B, to stop hurting others. So in verse 2, we're told to start loving others, just as Christ loved us. Next, he says, and I'm paraphrasing here in the, on the outline, stop hurting others. We see this in verses 3 and 4. The culture in the first century, in first century Ephesus was at least as saturated with sexual sin as ours is today if not more. Commentator James Montgomery Boyce mentions that the Greeks' appetite for sex can be seen in their worship of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. Her temple was built in Athens using funds from prostitution brothels, which was considered one of the ways to worship her, by the way. Knowing this was the culture that the Ephesians were being saved out of, Paul, you can understand why, he says, but sexual immorality must not even be named among you. Now, sexual immorality, the word there that you see in your Bible, it comes from the Greek word porneia, same word we get pornography from. It refers to a wide range of sexual sin, including premarital sex, adultery, homosexuality, and more. Next, he lists off impurity, which can refer to moral corruption or sexual sin as well. Paul mentioning impurity there in verse 3 is probably his attempt to broaden the sexual immorality restriction. Then he mentions covetousness, which is sometimes translated as greed, it refers to the sinful desire for more and more and more. Now, we often think of covetousness as materialism or related to money, which is fine. However, in this context, Paul seems to be referring to the insatiable desire for more and more sex or sexual content. I've always liked, and I learned this verse uh, as a young believer in the NIV translation. I've always preferred the NIV translation because it says not even a hint. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. Meaning not, not even the perception or the possibility of these sins is acceptable to the Lord. Not even... Even if you're not guilty of doing it, but somehow you do something that might make you look guilty, that's not good either. Now, sexual sin is unloving because it either hurts the one that we commit that sin with, or 
It hurts the person we commit the sin without, such as a spouse. Paul continues to explain why we need to stop hurting others in verse 4. He says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking. Filthiness refers to obscenities, and foolish talk is a, a kind of mocking of high standards of behavior. And then crude joking in the original text has to do with coarse jesting or dirty jokes. Proverbs uh, chapter 10, verse 23 says, Doing wrong is like a joke to a fool. Fools joke about sin. They make light of it. So I think what Paul is trying to say here is, is in regards to the joking, and don't even joke around about this kind of sin. Uh, because the Lord doesn't want his the Lord wants his children to not only avoid this kind of sin, but also to avoid talking or joking about them so we don't diminish their seriousness. See, that's a little subtle trick the adversary uses. Humor, to get our, our defenses down, where, you know, it's, it's not as bad as I heard it was in Sunday school growing up. You know, maybe it's not as bad as what the Bible says it is. And then we're just one step closer to giving in to that temptation. Making these kind of jokes uh, hurts others because getting them to laugh at sin lowers their defenses it makes them more susceptible to the sin. You can see the put-on behavior at the end of the verse here. Paul says, instead, let there be thanksgiving. Be thankful. Praise the Lord. Let that come out of your mouth instead of filthy talk and foul language. Next, if we were wondering why should we walk in love, I mean, what's the big deal, Paul? Well, he answers that question for us, too. Here's letter C. Because those who practice evil do not receive eternal life. Those who practice evil do not receive eternal life. Verse 5 contains a stern warning. So that we will take seriously what Paul is saying back in verses 3 and 4. Anyone who continues to commit the sins that he just mentioned will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. He also gave similar warnings to the Corinthians, the Galatians, and the Colossians. Now please notice in the, in the text here in verse 5, notice that he says everyone who is sexually immoral, impure, or covetous, not everyone who was. The point here is that anyone who professes faith in Christ but continues to live in sin proves they don't really possess faith in Christ. That's what he's trying to say. Certainly these sins are forgivable. They are. But Paul's trying to convey if you have sincerely repented of your sin and received Christ by faith, and you sincerely want a relationship with Him, then these sins here should not characterize your life anymore. Sure, you may struggle with them a little bit, but they, you should not be known for them anymore. 
there should be a noticeable change happening in your life. Or, as Charles Spurgeon, the the famous and very articulate 19th century preacher, once wrote in his book called All of Grace, and he says it so much better than I could, quote, Surely no rebel can expect the king to pardon his treason while he remains in open revolt. No one can be so foolish as to imagine that the judge of all the earth will put away our sins if we refuse to put them away ourselves. Now, just in case we weren't picking up what Paul was laying down, in verse 6, notice he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. The apostle is reinforcing the gravity of what he just said in verse 5, the warning he gave in verse 5. And he's, he's saying, in essence, uh, avoid anyone who tries to tell you differently. Because if they do, it'll just be empty talk. It's another torpedo to those who teach the false gospel of hyper-grace. This heresy deceives people into thinking that they can make a profession of faith, not have to forsake their sin, and still be considered saved because God's grace covers them. And while God is abundantly gracious, He's not a fool. Hyper-grace churches, though, are often difficult to detect because they don't necessarily encourage their attenders to sin, Instead, they just won't name sin, and they won't discipline unrepentant sin either. Such teaching may enable a church to grow quite large, but you can be sure of one thing. A hyper-grace gospel does not fill heaven. It deceives people. Believers are born again so they can imitate their father, Let's look back at the text again as we uh, read the next section, starting in verse 7. The apostle continues, Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's number two on your outline. God expects his children to walk in the light. God expects his children to walk in the light. Throughout the scriptures, darkness is used as a metaphor for sin, hiding sin, and Satan. Light, on the other hand, is used as a metaphor for holiness, exposing sin, and God. Blindness is used to describe those who cannot perceive spiritual things, while sight or seeing is used as a metaphor for those who can. 
Just like the stars of the universe that shine brightly in the darkness of night, Christ followers are called and expected to shine like lights in a world filled with darkness. We are to be different, noticeably different. And so Paul, again, being very practical here, answers the question, how? How should we walk in the light? And so here's letter A. Stop close relationships with unbelievers. Stop close relationships with unbelievers. Now, before you get your guns out, let me explain what, uh, what I mean here. He says in verse 7, do not become partners with them. Well, who's them? He's referring to the unbelievers, those who they, the, the Ephesian Christians used to be a part of, the unbelievers in the city of Ephesus. The word in the original text uh, for partner, it means to partake or to share in something intimately. I think Paul has two points here in verse 7. First, that believers should not participate in the sin that unbelievers engage in. And secondly, that we should not become closely aligned with them either. Now, this does not contradict other scriptures in which Jesus and the apostles encourage us to build relationships with unbelievers for the sake of evangelism. The key issue, or the core issue, is influence. That's really what he's getting at here, influence. We are to be close enough to unbelievers in order to influence them, but not so close that they influence us. That's why this verse would take issue with any believer dating an unbeliever or wanting to marry an unbeliever or a, a believer who says their best friend is an unbeliever and spends most of their time with unbelievers. Uh, this verse says, no, don't do that. Don't be partners with them. There needs to be some distance. Keep, keep them at arm's length so that you don't become influenced by them. Next, Paul also tells us how else we should walk in the light. Letter B, we should stop participating in darkness and start exposing it. Stop participating in darkness and start exposing it. He says in verse 10, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. This is what we should do when the lines between light and dark are fuzzy. Sometimes the scriptures aren't clear about whether something is sinful or not. However, with prayer and by asking ourselves what would please the Lord, more times than not, we'll be able to tell the difference and make a good decision. In verse 11, he says, Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. The word expose here, it means to, uh, it has four meanings actually. It means to convict, to bring to, into the light, to correct, or to discipline. All four definitions are commanded in the New Testament, but here Paul is probably referring to confronting fellow believers who are caught in sin or engaging in sin. This is mentioned in some of Paul's other letters as well, such as Colossians 3.16 and 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Talk about lovingly confronting fellow church members who are caught in sin in order to help them get right with the Lord. That is one of the ultimate demonstrations of love. Now, I also think that phrase there that you see in verse 11, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, I think it can also refer to bringing sins that we've struggled with in private 
into the light by sharing them with a trusted friend or accountability partner. James 5.16, for example, says, confess your sins one to another. That doesn't mean confess them to everybody in the church. There's wisdom that's required there. Maybe it's somebody in your small group or your small group leader or a mentor. It's not likely Paul is telling them to confront unbelievers here because generally confronting unbelievers about their sin is not recommended in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 5 talks about this. Proverbs 9.7 and Proverbs 17.10 also talk about not confronting unbelievers about their specific sins. Instead, they need to be shared the gospel with. Now, you'll notice in, the, in your text there, in your Bible, most Bibles have what appears to be a poem or some quote that's indented in the center of the page. It reads like this, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Commentators believe this is either a hymn that the Ephesians would have known, or it could be Paul loosely quoting Isaiah 26, 19, or Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Regardless, the purpose for Paul quoting this seems to be a call to repentance for Believers who are stuck in sin so that Christ's light can shine upon them again. The apostle uses being asleep spiritually as a metaphor for being stuck in sin in some of his other letters as well. Such as 1 Corinthians 15.34 and 1 Thessalonians 5.6. Now, he talked about how we should walk in the light. Next, Paul answers the question, why? Why should we walk? In the light. So here's letter C. Because we've been rescued from our former life. If you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been rescued from a life in sin, a life that is spiritually dead, and a life that was under God's wrath. Paul says this in verse 8 For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. It's very similar to what he says to the Colossians in Colossians 1.13, where he says that when an unbeliever trusts Christ, the Lord rescues them from the dominion of darkness and transfers them into the kingdom of his son. Literally, it refers to refugees in Colossians 1.13 being, being rescued from Satan's kingdom so that we can become citizens in God's kingdom. Something that we're powerless to do on our own. But Paul uses it to illustrate a transfer of citizenship from, from being under the Satan's control to becoming part of God's family and his kingdom. And so this is important because just as no refugee, say for example, coming to America from a poverty-stricken, crumbling third world country would not turn around and go back there, Paul is saying believers who have been brought into the light should not want to go back to their former life of darkness. So believers are born again so they can imitate their father. Finally, let's look at the final, uh, let's look at the last few verses here, the last three. 
uh, verses 15 to 17. And so Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here's number three in your outline. God expects his children to walk in wisdom. He expects his children to walk in wisdom. And the reason is, is that engaging in the sinful behavior he lists in the previous verses from our former life, he's saying it's a waste of time. It's unwise. So he says in verse 15, look carefully then at how you walk. This is an exhortation for every individual believer to regularly examine their own life to make sure it is pleasing to the Lord. Live not as unwise, but as wise. Wisdom is simply the skillful application of God's word to every area of our lives. It's the ability to discern what's pleasing to the Lord based on the principles in Scripture, even when the Scriptures don't specifically prescribe what we should do. Wisdom, though, originates from God and from His Word. And so it comes from learning and knowing His Word. So that when we come upon situations in life, the Holy Spirit can bring back to our minds Scriptures that we've learned during our devotional times or in our small group Bible study. And we can go, ah, I know what to do because I read this in 2 Chronicles or in 1 Corinthians. I remember what God's Word says to do here. Now again, Paul being very practical here answers the question, how should we walk in wisdom? Here's letter A. Start maximizing your time for the Lord. Start maximizing your time for the Lord. One of the many lies that Satan tries to tell all of us is that our time is our time and that we all will be here until we're at least 80 or 90 years old. Which, of course, when you stop to think about it, is not true. None of us is promised tomorrow. None of us know when our days will be done here on earth. That's why Paul says in verse 16, if you look at your Bible again, making the best use of the time. Uh, the, the word that he uses for making the best in the original text, it means to redeem or to buy up. It's a very interesting word. The idea being conveyed is to buy up time like it's a bargain with urgency because it's in short supply. James says in, in James chapter 4 that our lives are like a vapor or a mist in the span of eternity, that we're here for just a moment and then we're gone. That 70, 75 years, if the Lord is good, in the span of thousands of years is just, it's just a blink of an eye. And so because none of us know when we are going to die, we need to be prepared to give an account for our lives before the Lord at any moment. And again, tying it back into the context, meaning don't waste your time on the sins that he talks about here. Because tomorrow you could be standing before the Lord. So Paul says, he, excuse me, he answers the question, why? Why should we walk in wisdom? 
how is we need to maximize our time for the Lord, and it's time he's given us. Well, why? Because our time's limited. Our time is limited. That's letter B. I kind of already touched on this, but he reinforces it with the phrase, because the days are evil. Because the days are evil. Can anybody here testify to that? You seen any evil on the news lately? It's on every news channel. The world is getting more and more wicked by the day, and the return of the Lord, thankfully, is nearer than ever before. Thus, we only have so much time to be lights for unbelievers in this dark world, and we only have so much time to tell them about the hope they can have through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I still remember when the Lord used uh, verses 15 and 16 here and uh, Psalm 90, when I was in college, he, he used these verses in Psalm 90 to turn my heart away from wanting to be a football coach to going into full-time ministry. There were two sudden deaths in our athletic department that stunned our entire campus at the University of Iowa, where I went to school. And the Lord used those deaths to just kind of really show me and impress on me that my life is short. And based on Ephesians 5, 15, 16, and Psalm 90, which says, teach us, Lord, to count our days, I, I wanted my life to count. As, as, a, as a young 21, 22-year-old in college, I was able to see with the Lord's help, I am not going to be here long. And I could die at any moment. One of the deaths that took place was a, a forward on our basketball team who was my age. He got hit by a snowplow on his way to a basketball game at the school arena. The other was a, our offensive line coach on our football team who was in his mid-40s. They were on a cruise that they always went on as a, as, a, as a football coaching staff every February to kind of celebrate the end of the football season and the end of the recruiting season. And so the coaches and their wives would go on this cruise, and uh, John O'Hara was his name, was watching a, a, a dance show on the cruise ship with his wife sitting next to him and all the other coaches and their wives. And after one of the dance numbers finished, he turned to his wife and said, wow, that was great. I wonder what the next song's going to be. And before the next song finished, he had a heart attack, fell forward on the floor, and died. No previous heart issues, no health problems, gone, just like that. I think he was 48 years old. And so when I went to his funeral, and then I also went to the basketball player's funeral and saw, wow, I want my life to count. I want to make a difference. And so the Lord, the Lord just really showed me that my life would be best invested in ministry. That is not to say everybody is called to full-time ministry. We all are. Just some of us, it's vocational. So, why should we walk in wisdom? Because our time is limited. Let's talk about applications. We know that we're called to be doers of the word. We know that in James chapter 1, we're told that anyone who looks at the word then gets up and leaves and does nothing about it is like someone who looks in a mirror and, and does nothing about their appearance. 
according to James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. Well, the Apostle Paul has already given us broad applications by using the imperatives throughout this passage, such as, you know, let there be no foolishness or filthy talk coming out of your mouth. Let no one deceive you. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And that's all great. But I do think it would be most helpful if we wrote down some specific personal applications today based on where you are spiritually. And so like last week, I'm going to provide some questions for you, three questions that I hope will stimulate your thinking. And I want to encourage you to write down the answers to those questions on your handout. So here's the first one. Based on what we studied today, what do you need to stop or start doing to become more loving? What do you need to start or stop doing to become more loving? Perhaps it's being less selfish with your time or money. Or is there sexual sin or something impure or some form of coveting that you need to stop? Is the Holy Spirit showing you that the way you talk and joke with others is not honoring to the Lord? Do you need to change that? The Lord wants to, He wants you to replace your sinful behavior with righteous behavior, and He wants to help you do that so that you can have a closer relationship with him and have healthier relationships with other people. So what do you need to stop or start doing in order to become more loving? I want to encourage you to write that answer down. Next, number two, what darkness do you need to purge from your life? What darkness do you need to purge from your life? I remember when I came to know Christ in college, uh, one of the first things I did is I went through my CD library and started pitching albums that I just knew were not pleasing to the Lord, music I did not need to be listening to, lyrics I did not need repeating in my head. And it went through phases. There was kind of phase one purge, and then as I continued to grow in the Lord and practice the spiritual disciplines and the next year, there was phase two, purging, getting rid of CDs that I didn't need to listen to anymore. And then I began purchasing Christian music instead that put God's word to music and replacing that. And that process has continued on up into my uh, early 40s. I, I, I have gone through and I, sometimes, I don't know if you've done this before, I've heard songs that I used to love listening to as a, as a teenager from my heyday in the 80s, and then I, I, I now hear it as a parent and as a born-again believer, and I go, oh, that's what that song's about. I never knew that. Gotta delete that off that playlist. Man, that was a great workout song, too. That's what he's saying. Ah, okay. Love that guitar riff in there. Bummer. So what darkness do you need to purge from your life? There's one simple way to discern if there's darkness in your life you need to deal with, and it's this. If there's a behavior or habit that you feel compelled to hide or you do in private, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. The reason, is, the reason you hide it is because you're ashamed of it. 
It's what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3 when they were caught in sin by the Lord. They went and they hid. But the Lord doesn't want that for us. He, he doesn't want our lives to be burdened with guilt and shame from sins that we're committing. So when the Lord says don't sin, he's saying don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt our relationship, man. I want to be close to you, but I can't if you keep sinning. And I don't want you being weighed down by all this guilt and shame. There's a better life that you can have. The Lord longs for us to live in such a way that if we were to put 24-hour surveillance cameras on us all day, all week, there would be very little of anything that we are ashamed of. Because we'd have nothing to hide. The Lord wants us to live in such a way that we would welcome that almost. That, that we'd say, sure, you want to watch me all day, all night? Fine, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing I'm embarrassed about. Maybe a few idiosyncrasies, but no major sin issue or habit that I'm doing in the dark. Let me just tell you from my personal experience, there is incredible freedom and peace that follows getting rid of the skeletons in your closet. Incredible peace and freedom if you will trust the Lord and do that. Next, uh, lastly, uh, question three. What do you need to stop doing that's unwise or start doing that's wise? What do you need to stop doing that's unwise or start doing that is wise? Maybe it's going to bed earlier so you can get up earlier in the morning and spend time with the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's, as I mentioned last week, setting some boundaries with your smartphone and using some of the parental controls as a parent to limit how much you're on there. Something that immature believers will sometimes say to justify an unwise behavior or habit is this. And maybe you've heard this. Well, the Bible doesn't forbid it, so it must be okay. Well, the Corinthians in essence, tried to tell the Apostle Paul the same thing. And here's what his response was to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. All things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. We could paraphrase it today as, just because you can legally or biblically do it doesn't mean it's wise or beneficial to your walk with the Lord. I remember having this conversation with one of my boys um, uh, a while back uh, about uh, rated R movies. One of my boys thought that, you know, when he turned 17, just like this whole world of movies would open up for him and, oh, it's just going to be so awesome. I can watch anything I want. And I remember telling him, you know, because he, he thought, because dad, you, you do, right? And I'm, no, no, I, I don't. Just because I am slightly over 17, slightly, doesn't mean I watch every rated R movie I can. And that's because I know most of them aren't good for my soul. Instead, I watch very few, actually. And the ones I do, I vet thoroughly. So that's just a personal example of my own life. Even though it's permissible for me to watch any rated R movie I want, it doesn't mean it's beneficial. 
It's not good for my walk with the Lord. It's not good for my soul. Not good for my mind, my sanctification. So is there something in your life that's unwise, a waste of time, something holding you back from your walk, in your walk with the Lord, or that could hurt your witness that you need to stop doing? I want to encourage you to write that down. Tell the Lord, I'm going to make this change. And after you write the answers to these questions down, I want to encourage you to commit them to prayer this week. I want to encourage you to find some scripture verses that you can memorize and pray to help you use the power of God's word to change those habits and transform your mind. And I also want to encourage you to consider inviting someone to hold you accountable in that area of your life. Well, in 1820, an eccentric British clergyman named Charles Caleb Colton published a book called Lakin or Many Things in Fewer Words. It primarily consisted of pithy quotes or proverbs that he had developed over the years and the adage he is perhaps most known for is one that we still use in our English language today. I'm sure you probably have heard of it. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. It means that when we imitate someone, we do so because we admire that person and we value what they are doing. A few decades later, the eccentric and also quotable Irish playwright Oscar Wilde expounded on this cliche. It was in the late 1800s, and he added this to Colton's proverb. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. Dear loved ones, it is a great God who so badly desired a relationship with us that he gave his only son so that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So let's imitate him even when our best may be mediocre because believers are born again so they can imitate their father. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.